This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 5, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. Today we will be discussing the events surrounding Muawiyah's death and the reaction to his son Yazid ibn Muawiyah, his succession to the Caliph. So these are going; these events are going to basically begin the Second Fitna or the Second Muslim Civil War. And this fitna, the second second civil war, will last probably twice as long as the first fitna. In reality, it was about ten years compared to the uh, first fitna, was about which was about five years. But anyway, inshallah, we'll discuss. Uh, we'll the story will develop as we go along. For now, stay tuned after the show for further insight into some of the individuals that we will be discussing today. And if you are enjoying the show, if you believe that it gives you some sort of benefit, whether it's emotional, educational, whatever it may be, please support this podcast with a pledge at patreon.com slash Islamic history and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Islamic history. So with that, let's get into the show. This will be season season three. Episode 5, Hussein and Ibn Zubair. Al-Basra, Thamanwa Khamsun, Sanatul Hijriya. Basra, 58 A.H. Ubaidullah Ibn Ziyad stood among the spectators, watching the racehorses line up. He had placed a small wager on one of them and hoped it would win. Four years earlier, Ubaidullah had gone to Damascus, begging Muawiyah for a government position. At first, Muawiyah hesitated, but eventually he relented. His first assignment was as governor of Khorasan, a remote subdistrict of Basra. Ubaidullah performed well, and eventually Muawiyah promoted him to governor of Basra. On this day, the governor did not notice the group of men approaching him until the captain of his shurta pointed them out. O oh, tyrant, one of the men yelled, you are like the people of ignorance who came before us. The man was looking directly at Obedullah while his friends looked around warily. You build monuments to yourself and live in huge palaces. Do you think they'll make you live forever? What, well, are you crazy? The man's friends asked him. Don't you know Ibn Ziyad will kill you? I'm not afraid of Obedullah, son of the bastard. Hearing his father insulted made the rage boil deep down inside of Ubaidullah. But instead of lashing out, Ubaidullah channeled his father and swallowed his rage. Then he silently left the race. That evening, he sent his shurta to arrest Odwa, but the man had already fled to Kufa. Ubaidullah sent one of his fastest messengers to Kufa with a letter warning the governor that Odwa was a Khorajite and should be sent back to Basra if apprehended. Barely a week later, Odua was dragged before Obedullah. Anything to say now? the governor asked. Odua's face was covered in bruises. He had not come willingly. I think, he said through bloodied lips, that you have ruined this world for me. Not yet, said Obedullah, turning to his captain. Cut off this rebel's hands and feet. Cut off this rebel's hands and feet. 
There was a flurry of activity as Ottawa frantically fought against his chains. Six, seven, eight Shorta rushed to hold him as he swung in every direction. They wrestled Ottawa to the ground, pinning him down two men to a limb. Obedullah's captain unsheathed his sword and went from limb to limb, hacking off Ottawa's hands and feet with practiced precision. Ottawa screamed as the sword crunched through his flesh and bone and tendon. The air filled with the smell of roasting flesh as his bloody stumps were cauterized. When it was all done, Ottawa writhed on the bloody ground, his screams turning to pitiful moans. Now, said Obedullah, anything else to say? I think, Ottawa choked painfully, that you have ruined the next world for yourself. Defiant to the end, sighed Obedullah in disgust. Bring in the girl. A young woman, no more than 14 years old, was hauled in. She screamed when she saw Ottawa on the floor and tried to rush to his side, but the Shorta held her back. When you rebel against the regime, bellowed Obedullah, not bothering to swallow his rage this time, you bring ruin to yourself and your family. Kill them both. Ottawa and his daughter were dragged away and Obedullah smiled softly to himself. His father would be proud. Damascus, 59 A.H. Muawiyah greeted Obedullah ibn Ziyad and his delegation from Basra as they entered his court. They had arrived to pledge allegiance to Muawiyah's son and successor, Yazid ibn Muawiyah. They started to sit, but Muawiyah ordered them to remain standing. He did not want them looking directly at his face. He had slicked his hair back with oil and applied a special ointment to make his skin look robust and less pale, but he wasn't sure if any of it worked. Muawiyah was pleased with Obedullah. The young man was just as effective as his father had been, although much harsher, something Muawiyah would have never thought possible. Obedullah and his father were loyal, but that loyalty came with a cost. One such cost was the memory of Hujr ibn Adi, which still haunted Muawiyah. Muawiyah's face wrenched in anguish as a familiar bolt of pain shot through his abdomen. It was so deep he couldn't even scream. All he could do was suck in his breath and wait for it to pass. Are you all right, Amir al-Mu'minin? asked Urbaidullah. Muawiyah nodded and gestured for his governor to continue. This is Hoja's revenge, he thought as the pain vibrated through his body. My days are three times worse because of Hujjad ibn Adi. He wanted to lay down, but he was too proud. Instead, he adjusted the pillows that were keeping him upright. Death was near. There was no doubt about it. Muawiyah reflected on the other Sahaba who had died during his reign. Aisha bint Abi Bakr, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, Sa'id ibn Zaid, Hassan ibn Ali, Abu Musa al-Ashari, Maimuna bint al-Hadith, Abdurrahman ibn Abi Bakr, Abdullah ibn Amir, Arkam ibn al-Arkam, Amr ibn al-As, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. They were instrumental in establishing Islam and the empire, and he would be joining them soon. But he hoped to see another summer. He hoped to send one more army against the Romans. Damascus, Satina Senator Hijriya. Damascus. 60 A.H. Muawiyah did not get to see another summer, nor launch another raid against the Romans. 
He died on Rajab 15, 60 AH, or April 21st, 680. He was 75 years old. He reigned for a little more than 19 years, longer than any of his predecessors. But his caliphate was controversial. The peace and stability he brought the empire was badly needed. No one can deny his administrative abilities. He successfully defended the caliphate against external enemies, established it as a naval power, and expanded its reach in all directions. One way he did this was to maintain a perpetual state of war against the Roman Empire. Muawiyah kept the Romans in check by sending an army to attack them every summer before the harvest and while the ground was soft. There were some gains such as when they captured the Greek isles of Rhodes and Crete, but these battles weren't really for territorial conquest. It was a war of attrition in which Muawiyah hoped to wear down the Romans and keep his soldiers in fighting shape. There was also eastern and western expansion during his reign, though much slower and costlier than the early Muslim conquests. To the east, Central Asia was a vast land with ferocious tribes and thousands of miles of inhospitable mountains. To the west, North Africa was a vast land with ferocious tribes and thousands of miles of inhospitable desert. There was also a dark side to Muawiyah's reign. After Ali's death, Muawiyah had the opportunity to heal the rift with the Sharia to Ali. Instead, his policies pushed them further away. He appointed despotic governors like Ziad ibn Abihi and his son Ubaidullah. He encouraged the cursing of Ali on the pulpit, and he filled the government with people from his clan. One scholar had this to say about the fifth caliph. Muawiyah had four flaws, and any of them would have been a serious offense. His appointing troublemakers for this community so that he stole its rule without consultation with his members, while there was a remnant of the companions and possessors of virtue among them. His appointment of his son as his successor after him, a drunkard and a wine-bibber who wears silk and plays tambours. His allegations about Ziad, while the messenger of God has said, the child belongs to the bed and the adulterer should be stoned. And his killing of Hujr ibn Adi, woe unto him twice for Hujr ibn Adi. Before he died, Muawiyah publicly pledged allegiance to his son Yazid. This meant, in theory, that all those who had pledged to Muawiyah were now pledged to his son. He also ensured his governors would support Yazid's caliphate against any rebellions. In this way, the caliphate became a monarchy and passed from father to son. Al-Madinatul Munawwara, Satina Sanatul Hijriya, Medina, 60AH. Why do you think he sent for us? asked Ibn Zubair. Most likely the tyrant in Damascus has died and he wants our pledge to his son before it becomes public, replied Hussein Ibn Ali. The two men were sitting in the Prophet's mosque when they received the governor's summons. What are you going to do? inquired Ibn Zubair. I'm going to obey the summons and go see the governor. That worries me. No need to worry, replied Hussein. I won't go to him alone. Hussein returned to his home and began gathering the men of his family. He called for his sons, his cousins, and his uncles. He called for his male servants, his in-laws, and his nephews. 
Then he called for those who were connected to his family through allegiance and fostering. At 54 years, he was not an old man, but he was not young either. Nineteen years ago, when his brother had abdicated the caliphate, he would have been better able to resist the Umayyads. Hussein was patient and went along with his brother back then. Even after his brother died, under mysterious circumstances no less, Hussein exercised patience. But after 19 years of Umayyad rule, he was running out of patience. The brutality of the bastard governor in Iraq, the cursing of his father throughout the empire, the unjust trial and execution of Hujr ibn Adi. Hussein was the grandson of the messenger of Allah and the son of a caliph. He could not sit safely in Medina while innocent Muslims were slaughtered all around him. But would the Muslims support him? After all, they had barely supported his father. Most of the Muslims had betrayed Ali, even some of those who were closest to his grandfather. Aisha, his grandfather's wife, had fought against Ali. Tolha and Zubair, two of his grandfather's closest friends, had betrayed Ali. Even the Iraqis had ultimately turned against Ali. When Hussein arrived at the governor's palace, he instructed his men to wait outside. They were only to come in if they heard shouting or fighting. Muawiyah has returned to his lord, said the governor, Walid ibn Utbah, when Hussein entered. Amir al-Mu'minin Yazid ibn Muawiyah demands that you give him bay'ah and prove your loyalty to the regime. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi roji'un. From Allah we come and to him is our return, said Hussein. Something as important as a pledge should be done in public so the entire community can bear witness. Don't fall for that, said Marwan ibn Hakam, standing behind Walid. Marwan was the former governor of Medina and had once been Caliph Uthman's secretary. Do not let him leave without getting his pledge. He is the grandson of the messenger of Allah, replied Walid. What would you have me do, put him in fetters until he pledges? By Allah, hissed Marwan, if he leaves without taking the pledge, you'll never get it without a fight. Take his pledge or take off his head. You son of a blue-eyed woman, spat Hussein. You dare call me a liar? You dare threaten me? You are a liar and the sinner. Hussein turned and stormed away. With each step, he expected Wali to arrest him. Instead, the governor and Marwan argued about whose fault it was that he was getting away. Al-Madinatul Munawwara, Satina Sanatul Hijriya Medina, 60 A.H. Asma bent Abi Bakr listened to the conversation outside. Don't rush me, she heard her son say. This is a big decision you're asking me for. I need more time. The governor wants an answer, the other man replied. And I will give him one soon enough, her son shot back. She heard his footsteps grow louder as he approached the house. How many does that make? She asked her son as he entered. That's the fourth messenger today, he responded. Any word from Ibn Ali? He met with the governor, but he hasn't pledged yet. Asma knew Hussein would never give Yazid the bay'ah. He had that proud, self-righteous streak just like his father. All of the Shi'iyatun Ali acted as if the rest of the Muslims had done some great wrong to them. It was a shame what happened to Ali, she admitted. 
but he brought it on himself by fighting her sister and allying with those flaky Iraqis. Her son would not make that mistake. He was brave and stubborn like his father, but he was also patient and wise like his grandfather. But she was afraid for him. Banu Amaya was powerful. They had money and armies and spies. All her son had was righteousness and his people's love. He would need more than that. Asma thought back to the Battle of the Ditch when Abu Sufyan had led 10,000 soldiers against Medina. Her son was only five years old back then. They were huddled inside the fortress of Medina with several other women and children. Some of the pagans had briefly crossed the ditch and were almost inside the city. Zubair led a group of Sahaba who quickly drove them back. See there, she had said pointing to her husband, there's your father fighting for Allah and his messenger. Though she was proud of her husband that day, her marriage to Zubair was neither easy nor pleasant. Zubair ibn Awam was a devout man and totally dedicated to the cause of Islam. But he was also a harsh and demanding husband. Like most of the Prophet's followers, Zubair had lost everything when he migrated to Medina. Her husband could not afford a servant, so she had to care for his horse on her own. This included watering and grooming the beast, grinding date stones to make feed, and carrying heavy bushels of grass and hay in the desert sun. Zubair's fortunes eventually turned as Islam spread throughout Arabia. By the time Uthman was caliph, Zubair was one of the wealthiest men in Medina. And after 23 years of marriage and eight children, Zubair divorced her. She was there in Medina the day the caliph was killed. She knew there were people begging her ex-husband to accept the caliphate. But Zubair refused. This requires shura, he had insisted, not one man's decision. Then out of nowhere, they heard that Ali had proclaimed himself caliph. There was no shura and no consultation. And those same Iraqis who killed Uthman had rallied around Ali. Even that would have been forgivable if Ali had done what he promised to do. Find Uthman's killers. But he did not. He claimed he had neither the support nor the manpower to find them. Yet he was able to lead an army against her sister at the Battle of the Camel. Your father and your grandfather stood for truth, she said to her son, even when the entire world stood against them. You are a warrior and you must not submit to tyranny. Ibn Zubair nodded. But I can't stay in Medina. The governor will not rest until I pledge allegiance to that fat drunkard in Damascus. Sixty years ago, I helped your grandfather and the messenger of Allah escape Mecca and come to Medina. Now you must do the same, but in the opposite direction. And what about Hussein? My hope is that you two will work together against Banu Omeya. But my fear is that he will rely on those feeble Iraqis. You must not do that. You must go to Mecca. The rest of the day was a flurry of hushed and rushed activity. Ibn Zubair continued to deflect the governor's messengers as he secretly prepared for his journey. Finally, in the middle of the night, Asma bade her son farewell as he mounted his camel. Stay off the main road, she advised him as they walked towards the gate. 
They had already gone over this several times, but she couldn't help reminding him once more. Of course, mother. I will join you as soon as it's safe. Don't worry about us. It is too late for that. She watched him and his party leave the compound and disappear into the night. Damascus, Satina Sanatu Hijriya. Damascus, 60 AH. Yazid could not believe the news. He read the parchment again just in case he missed something. Ibn Zubair had fled Medina the same night Muawiyah's death was announced. Yazid's cousin, the governor, Walid ibn Utbah, had sent soldiers after him, but they never caught him. And if that bit of incompetence wasn't enough, Hussein ibn Ali had slipped away the very next morning. The governor was so concerned about catching Ibn Zubair, he completely ignored Hussein. Yazid shook his head and shifted uncomfortably in his clothes. He had put on several pounds in the past few years, and his robes did not fit well. His father never had these problems. Muawiyah managed the entire empire, all while keeping his enemies at bay. But his father's advisor supported and adored him. Even that disgusting governor in Iraq gave him good counsel. Yazid did not enjoy such a relationship with Muawiyah. Muawiyah was always busy with affairs of state and hardly took notice of his son. It was Yazid's Christian mother who showered him with love and praises. Of course, his father was kind and made sure he had the best education and training money could buy. But Yazid always felt his father was secretly disappointed in him, as if he wasn't a true Arab. His father was always disapproving of Yazid's love of music and silk and dancing girls. Yazid admitted he did not act like a traditional Arab, but in his defense, he did not grow up in Arabia. He grew up in Damascus. Truthfully, he couldn't stand Arabia. It was too hot and the people were too religious, especially in Mecca. He had made one pilgrimage and that was enough for him. And what were Hussein and Ibn Zubair doing in Mecca? No doubt planning an alliance against him. Even though their fathers had fought against each other, he was their common enemy now. Yazid knew Iraq would welcome Hussein ibn Ali with open arms. The Sharia would never get over how they failed Ali. But why did Ibn Zubair withhold his pledge? What grudge did he have against Banu Umayyah? So many questions, yet Yazid had no answers. He tried to place himself in his father's shoes, what would he do in this situation? Muawiyah used to dismiss governors who proved ineffective. Perhaps it was time for Yazid to do the same. He called for a parchment and ink and scribbled a brief message. Then he handed it to his messenger and urged him to deliver it quickly. With the exception of Banu Umayyah, Yazid did not care for the Hijazis and he knew they did not like him either. They hated him because his mother was Christian and because he was fat and because he drank wine. But he was still the caliph and the son of Muawiyah and he would teach them to love him. And they would all love him just like they had loved his father. Mecca to Satina Sanatul Hijriya Mecca 60 AH Hussein nodded curtly at Ibn Zubair as their groups passed each other on the way to the Kaaba. It was the holy month of Ramadan and the city was crowded with pilgrims from all over the empire. In the two months since Hussein arrived in Mecca, he noticed the city had divided into three groups. There were those that supported him and Banu Hashim, 
and then there were those loyal to Banu Omeya, and finally there were those who, for some reason, were loyal to Ibn Zubair. What right did Ibn Zubair have to the caliphate? Yes, Ibn Zubair's father had been a great companion, but Hussein's father was greater. Yes, Ibn Zubair's grandfather was Abu Bakr, but Hussein's grandfather was Prophet Muhammad. Yes, Ibn Zubair's mother was Asma and one of the first 20 people to accept Islam. But Hussein's mother was Fatima, the Prophet's daughter and one of the first five people to accept Islam. Ibn Zubair had come to Mecca first, so he had already begun gathering supporters and forging alliances by the time Hussein arrived. But lately, more and more people were beginning to gravitate towards Hussein. As Hussein's popularity increased, their relationship turned frosty. Hussein and Ibn Zubair had always been friendly in Medina, but now there was an unspoken coldness between them. Hussein did not want that. He needed Ibn Zubair as an ally, not an enemy. He was well aware of the sad history between their fathers at the Battle of the Camel. Aisha, Talha, and Zubair should have never turned against his father. They forced Ali to confront them at the Battle of the Camel. Yet, it was Ali who suffered the most. His reputation never recovered after drawing swords against the Prophet's widow. Hussein would not make the same mistake. He would avoid any conflict with Ibn Zubair. Besides, Hussein knew his real strength was in Iraq, not in the Hejaz. His people were in Kufa. They needed him there. Every day, he received messages from Kufa telling him how the people were gathering in houses, praying for his return. They said no one respected the Umayyad governor and refused to pray behind him. They begged Hussein to come to Kufa. They wanted the rightful caliph in Iraq. Hussein was moved by the love they expressed for his father, and he was touched by the anguish they felt for letting him down. The Iraqis blamed themselves for Ali's defeat, and they wanted to make up for it by pledging to his son. It was this outpouring of love that encouraged Hussein to take the next step. He sent his cousin, Muslim ibn Aqil, to scout things out in Kufa. Muslim ibn Aqil was to first determine if the stories were true. If it turned out there really was massive support for Hussein, then he would send word back to Mecca. Only then would Hussein make the long and dangerous journey to Kufa. If Ibn Zubair wanted the Hejaz, he could have it. For now. Arabia was too sparsely populated to field a strong army. Its cities were too far apart and the lack of food and water led to small, isolated communities. Besides, Everyone knew the Hejazis were too religious for warfare. This was proven when Hussein had run into Ibn Omar and Ibn Abbas on his way to Mecca. The two companions were returning to Medina and were not yet aware of Muawiyah's death. When Hussein informed them that he and Ibn Zubair had refused to give the pledge, they begged him not to go to Mecca. Ibn Omar warned Hussein that his actions would divide the community and bring more bloodshed. Hussein respected Ibn Omar, but the man was naive. Ibn Omar would have been content to spend the rest of his life praying for victory against Banu Umayya instead of fighting for it. But then again, nobody was cursing Ibn Omar's father. Everyone loved Caliph Omar and gushed about how good things used to be back then. When people spoke about the good old days, they really meant when Omar was the Caliph. Hussein did not have that luxury. 
He politely thanked Ibn Umar for his advice and continued to Mecca. He knew those two would eventually pledge to Yazid, not because they loved Banu Umayyah, but because they wanted to avoid warfare and bloodshed. Hussein completed the seven circuits of the Kaaba and raised his hands in prayer. He prayed for the security of the city and its people, he prayed for peace and justice, and he prayed for the success of his cousin, Muslim Ibn Aqil. Damascus, Satina Senator Hijriya. Damascus, 60 AH. Yazid ibn Muawiyah hated getting letters. Each one brought worse news than the last. There was trouble brewing in Kufa, this new letter warned. The Sharia to Ali were calling for Hussein to come and lead them in a rebellion against his government. Yazid had expected this. He knew the Sharia to Ali hated him just like they hated his father. According to the message, Hussein's deputy, Muslim ibn Aqil, had entered Kufa quietly. He stayed with another Sharia, a relative of that rebel Hujjad ibn Adi, and began to secretly call people to join Hussein. The word spread and the excitement surrounding Hussein boiled over. Before long, the entire city was openly talking rebellion. The next line shocked Yazid. 12,000 men had already given bay'ah to Hussein through his deputy. According to the Umayyad loyalists in Kufa, the Shia to Ali had no regard for his governor, Numan ibn Bashir. Numan ibn Bashir was an Ansar and one of the Prophet's companions, but that did not matter. The people of Kufa wanted Hussein. The letter said most of the city mocked the governor and refused to pray behind him. The governor pleaded with the people to remain loyal. He even threatened them with all sorts of violence and punishment. But none of it worked. The calls for Hussein continued to grow and they were getting louder and bolder. Yazid knew that if Hussein got to Kufa, they would rally around him and overthrow his governor. And then Yazid would have to fight enemies on two fronts, Ibn Zubair in Mecca and Hussein in Iraq. The boldness of it all troubled Yazid. The Sharia acted as if Hussein was guaranteed to topple Banu Umayyah. What would father do, Yazid thought to himself once again. He'd probably tell the bastard to deal with it and turn a blind eye while hundreds of people lost their heads. But it would get the job done, Yazid had to admit. Perhaps that was why his father tolerated Ziyad's brutality. He got the job done. That's not what Yazid wanted. He did not want to kill people, but what else could he do? Ibn Zubair and Hussein weren't going to lay down their swords just because he asked them nicely. And what had his father told him about those two? The Iraqis, they will pressure Hussein ibn Ali to rebel against you, and he's going to listen to them. But they will fail him just like they failed his father and his brother. The one you got to worry about is Ibn Zubair. He is like a crouching lion or a heaving reptile or a cunning fox. He will try to destroy you at the first opportunity. His father was right, of course. He had to deal with these rebellions swiftly before they got out of hand. At just that moment, Sarjun walked in. Amir al-Mu'mineen, another letter from Kufa, the old man said. More bad news, I'm afraid. 
Sardun was his secretary and was his father's secretary before that. He was a Christian man, well-educated and fluent in Arabic, Latin, and Greek. Yazid trusted Sardun more than any of his uncles and cousins. Sardun, said Yazid, my realm is threatened by rebellion and usurpers. You served my father long and well. What, what should I do? If your father could talk to you right now and give you sound advice, would you listen to him? Of course. Then perhaps you should look at this final order he made on his deathbed. The old secretary withdrew a small parchment from his robe and handed it to Yazid. Yazid read the parchment and shook his head. I, I don't know, he finally said. That man is a brute, just like his father was. Your father saw something in his father. Amid al-Mu'minin, every hunter needs a dog, and so do you. You need someone to do your dirty work. You need someone to call when the time for talking has passed. Yazid sighed. The old man was right. The time for talking had passed. Al-Basra, Satina Sanatu Hijriya. Basra, 60 A.H. Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad took a deep breath as he unsealed the parchment. This was it, he thought. This was the message he was afraid of. Amir al-Mu'minin, Yazid ibn Muawiyah, never liked Ubaidullah's father. Yazid openly called his father a bastard and did not believe they were true Umayyads. The hatred Yazid had for Ziyad ibn Abihi passed on to Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. Ubaidullah tried to prove himself to his new caliph, but no matter what he did, Amir al-Mu'minin never warmed up to him. He opened the parchment, expecting to read the order for his dismissal. Instead, Amir al-Mu'minin was ordering him to take over Kufa. Ubaidullah studied the parchment, looking for some sign of trickery. Perhaps this was some Khwarij plot to get him out of Basra. But the caliph's seal was unmistakable. The letter said Hussein ibn Ali was plotting a rebellion in Kufa. Over 12,000 people had given bayat to Hussein through his deputy, a man named Muslim ibn Aqil. Amir al-Mu'minin wanted Ubaidullah to go to Kufa and re-establish the caliphal authority. He was also to arrest and kill Hussein's deputy and anyone else who openly defied Banu Umayyah. Ubaidullah sat back in utter disbelief. He couldn't believe how closely his life was paralleling his father's. Amir al-Mu'minin had just given him all of Iraq, just like Muawiyah had done with Ziyad ibn Abi Sufyan. Muawiyah had raised his father from a forgotten refugee to the second most powerful man in the empire. And now the son was doing the same for him. Ubaidullah felt tears welling in his eyes. Allah had heard his prayers. He was being given the chance to save the empire and prove his worth. He would not let this chance go to waste. He would protect Banu Umayyah and save the regime. He was one of them. This was not about power. This was about family. He made up his mind to strike out for Kufa in the morning. He would take over the city, kill Muslim Ibn Aqil, and stop Hussein's rebellion before it got started. And may Allah have mercy on anyone who stood in his way.
Alhamdulillah, that was our show, and I hope you found it beneficial and educational and, and uh, entertaining and all that good stuff. Let's talk about some of the characters that we met today. First, we will discuss Hussein ibn Ali. Now, from this episode, you can tell that Hussein did not agree with his brother Hassan ibn Ali abdicating in the first place. Hussein and his brother Jafar disagreed with Hassan, but they went along with him because at that time he was the caliph. Now, in addition to Hussein's disagreement with his brother his initially, uh, there's also two persistent rumors about the caliphate, about Muawiyah's caliphate in his agreement with Hassan ibn Ali in his abdication. Now, I can't find, I haven't found anything directly about it, whether in Tariq Khatabari or in any other valid Muslim source. But these two rumors or speculations are very persistent in lots of other parts of Islamic history, um, other collections of Islamic history. Number one is that Muawiyah had agreed with Hassan ibn Ali that the next caliph would be chosen by Shura. That's one thing. I've read it many places, but I haven't found enough evidence from a Muslim source, but it's constantly repeated. Another rumor is that Muawiyah had something to do with Hassan ibn Ali's death. Hassan was only about two years older than Hussein. And so at the time of this story, remember, Hussein was about 54 years old. That would have made his brother uh, 56 years old, but his brother actually died almost 10 years earlier. So that would have made him somewhere in his late 40s at the most when he died. There is a lot of speculation that Muawiyah had something to do with that and had Hassan ibn Ali poisoned. But I couldn't find enough evidence from a Sunni Muslim point of view. There's quite a bit of Shia Muslim point of view about it. But I couldn't find enough evidence from a Sunni Muslim point of view to really include that as a, a turning point in the story. So I didn't include that. Now, another one I want to talk about, another person I want to talk about is Ibn Zubair. Ibn Zubair was, of course, his full name was Abdullah Ibn Zubair, but everyone pretty much knows him as Ibn Zubair. He was the son of Zubair ibn Awam, the great uh, um, Sahaba and companion of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It's um, not really clear why he he felt he had a right to the caliphate, but uh, I believe and that he just felt that um, uh, what's his name Yazid ibn Muawiyah, Muawiyah's son, was just too impious, not righteous enough. He, there were other people who deserved it much more. And that was part of Ibn Zubair's reason for rebelling against the Umayyads. And that's the reason why, because otherwise, unlike Hussein, who had a father who was a caliph, and so Hussein could say that, well, my father lost his caliphate through unjust means, and so I'm trying to, to establish righteousness. Ibn Zubair, the only reason I can see for him to rebel against the Umayyads is that he just felt that the Umayyads were maybe unjust and that uh, Yazid ibn Muawiyah in particular was unrighteous. And as you saw from this episode, he really had a lot of lots of flaws. It is um, um, Yazid ibn Muawiyah had lots of flaws. One thing I, I, I was glad I was able to bring up was Ibn Zubair's 
um, relationship with his mother, Asma bint Abi Bakr. Asma had a huge influence on Ibn Zubair. There's many stories about her encouraging him and them discussing different tactics during his rebellion against the against the Umayyads. It was a very interesting relationship between these two. And I was glad I was able to bring this out because unfortunately, there during this period, there's not that much information about the women during this period. And I'm pretty sure women were there. So I'm pretty sure they had something to do with some of these things. But this story with Asma bint Abi Bakr and her son, Ibn Zubair, I think this was a really good opportunity to try and bring some women into the story. Alhamdulillah. One of the things about Asma bint Abi Bakr, as we mentioned, uh, she was one of the early companions. She was a, the daughter of Abu Bakr. She was known as Dhatun uh, She, the woman or the lady with two belts. She used to, well, during the time when um, uh, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Abu Bakr, anhu, when they were making the hijrah, um, the migration from Mecca to Medina, there's a famous story. We all know how they had to hide inside of a cave while the Quraysh were chasing for them, chasing after them and trying to find them. And while they were hiding in this cave, Asma, she used to bring them food and water um, wrapped up inside of two uh, pieces of cloth. And she would wrap those pieces of cloth around her waist like two belts. So she put the, like a skin of water inside one, um, one wrap and then the food inside of another wrap. And she would bring it to them. And that's why they called her the Lady of Two Belts because of that. So she was very um, highly involved in one of the most important events in Islamic history, the migration of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So I think her discussion or her um, involvement in this period will be very interesting to say the least. Now regarding her marriage with Zubair, that was a bit of a surprise to me to find out that they didn't really have a very good relationship. And some of my, well, they, they did divorce. I want to say that I had to... I came to the conclusion that the relationship wasn't that good based upon their interactions. First of all, once again, after 20 years of marriage and you get divorced, the relationship must not have been that great. Also, she um, there, there's several hadith that quote their interaction between Zubair ibn Awam and Asma bint Abi Bakr. And it's not very, it's not, you can, you can kind of sense there's a bit of harshness in, in their marriage. And I don't know how to really say, it's not really much I can say, it's just that, you know, what can you say? The, they didn't really have the greatest relationship from what I can see. Though, uh, you know, there's more to relationship than just the emotions between the man and the woman. They obviously gave birth to a good son. Uh, they both played a huge role in the establishment of Islam. But it doesn't appear as if they really got along that well as husband and wife, even though they're married for over two decades. But that being that as it may, that's uh, all I can say about that one, I guess. Moving on um, to the, the Muslim podcast for the week will be The Power Project with Shanan Dauda. Brother Shanan is a Muslim finance coach. I kind of know him, not really, really well. I met him a few times, but he's a very knowledgeable brother as far as finances are concerned. He helps people attain financial freedom through basically making smart and intelligent financial financial choices. And even though he, he is Muslim, but 
Um, he has his clients are both Muslim and non-Muslim, but he gives lots of talks and seminars and coaching groups uh, throughout the Atlanta area and all over the world, really, all over the country. I don't know if he goes all over the world, but he goes all over the the country at least, giving these talks and definitely throughout Atlanta, he's quite popular. But he has a podcast called The Power Project with Shannon Dowda. That's the name of the, the podcast. So. There'll be a link inside of the show notes, inshallah, where you can see that. There'll also be a, a short clip. And in today's clip, he's going to be talking about how quickly the, how quickly the thrill of new purchases disappeared. And he discusses how his um, his the purchase of a new Apple Watch, you know, the initial joy of that purchase eventually waned. And he just warns people how to be careful about um getting addicted to that sudden sense of happiness when you buy something new. So, inshallah, I hope that you uh, make sure you visit the show notes page at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Hussein, and Hussein is spelled H-U-S-A-Y-N. At the show notes page, you can support the show by making a pledge at patreon.com slash islamichistory, and Patreon is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash islamichistory. Also, at the show notes page, I'm going to put some links to a couple of hadiths about Asma bint Abi Bakr, mostly dealing with how she got her nickname, the Lady of the Two Belts, and also how she had to deal with uh, Zubair ibn Awam's horse that we mentioned in the podcast. There will also be a map um, that I made from Google Earth that shows the Islamic Caliphate in the year 680 when Muawiyah died helping you hopefully understand the distance between all these different places we're mentioning, Damascus and Boston and Kufa and Medina, all these different places. Hopefully, inshallah, it helps you get a better spatial understanding of how far apart these things were and how big this empire was. Also be links to uh, Brother Shannon's uh, podcast, The Power Project, links to my social media, and of course, you can also read the full transcript for this episode. And so with that, until next time, inshallah, assalamu alaikum. But anyway, so segueing into our topic today, man, um, we're talking about the novelty of, of new things like new gadgets and trinkets and cars and houses, like just how it's all exciting when you first purchase it. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you either have to do some maintenance or something new comes out and the whole novelty of what you just bought wears off. So what inspires you to want to talk about this? Oh man, that's a, a lot. actually I'm really excited about this topic because it just literally happened to me in real life. And I mean, you know, people are like, oh man, you're the financial coach, you're a money expert. Nah, man, I'm normal and I got emotions and feelings and, you know, face money struggles just like you guys. Um, so, I mean, what really inspired me is recently my birthday passed by um, and I've been going working crazy with these taxes, right? So, you know, it was like, all right, well, I'm gonna give myself a little gift, you know, a little birthday present to my slash slash to myself slash tax season gift. Right. And so it was just like, all right, well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and I always wanted to, um, I wanted recently, I've been thinking about getting an Apple watch and, you know, a fit, I used to have a Fitbit and I just kept burning through them. And I was like, all right, well, I want to get something that I can at least track my health and fitness on and it would be reliable. So I went that route, right. Bought the Apple watch. And I kid you not, man, when you, um, when you get something new, uh, when I went, I remember going up to the mall, walking into the store, buying it and you get something new. There's this feeling of, you know, of uh, that just goes through you. And if you're not aware, you know, this feeling of like, you know, uh, uh, something new accomplishment, you know, self happiness, you know, or, you know, like, or I guess a feeling of I made it right. And that kind of goes through you. And if you're not aware, I realized cause I was just reflecting on myself like, wow, this feeling is really going through me right now. And most people aren't aware of that feeling going through them. And so they, they think 
and allow that feeling to start manifesting and trying to find it multiple times. So when that feeling runs out, after you had your Apple Watch for 30 days or whatever, however long it goes before it fades, then you're looking for the next thing to get you on that high or get that feeling back again, right? And so I think it can become an addicting feeling, man. And that's why I think a lot of people spend money the way they do.